Hello, and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Max Haven, and I'm Canada Research Chair in the Radical Imagination at Lakehead University. And I'm Aris Komporoso Safanasu, and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. I'm A.T. Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in politics at York University. This episode, we're joined by Suvik Mukherjee, who is an assistant professor in cultural studies at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences in Calcutta. Uh, today we'll we'll be discussing Suvik's book, uh, "Video Games and Postcolonialism: Empire Plays Back," published uh, in 2017 in, in Springer, UK. And we're really excited to have Suvik on the show because Suvik's research looks at the narrative and the literary through the emerging discourse of video games as storytelling media, and at how these games inform and challenge our conceptions of narratives, identity, and, and culture. Some of Suvik's related interests and expertise include a broad spectrum of topics in game studies ranging from identity and temporality in video games to the video game industry in Southeast Asia. Currently, he is researching how video games relate to post-colonial studies and separately, also how certain ancient Indian board games contribute to the understanding of gameplay. So welcome to the show, Sovik. We're so, so glad to have you here today. Um, so, uh, thank you so much, Adam and uh, Max and Aris. And uh, it is like really, really lovely to be here. It's a huge honor. Thank you. I, I'll start us off because when I, when I read uh, the introduction of your book, I was really uh, taken by some of your explorations around the relationship between like colonialism and cricket playing out in kind of like, you know, the kind of British colonization of India. So I guess I wanted to ask, you know, you speak of the connection in your book between the ludic impulse or play and the post-colonial through this example of cricket, right? What Kipling calls like the great game. And I was yeah. hoping you could maybe elaborate for us a bit on, on this link between colonialism and play. So, I mean, any, anybody uh, who's, who's kind of like played on the streets in India, uh, I can safely say, would probably be familiar with cricket, some form of it, right? With a rubber ball or kind of like whatever. So it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, there was a time when I used to, when I was a kid, I used to think that cricket was an Indian game. <laughs> but uh, let me just kind of go back to that a little bit. But yes, in my book, I, I had to use cricket uh, because because of um, to underscore multiple points about colonialism. First is following Simon Gikandi in his Maps of Englishness. I address the issue of how a colonial game changes color, literally and metaphorically. Uh, a colonial game that was supposed to be a ludic model for teaching the colonized to behave and be subservient has been changed majorly over the years. Um, its exclusiveness as a white British game uh, has been subverted. And uh, like uh, there was kind of this whole idea about kind of uh, uh, like cricket couldn't be played by certain people outside some British clubs has just kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's been subverted. And as Ramchandra Goh uh, mentions, the, in, in his book, um, the, um, uh, yeah, in the corner of a foreign field, uh, he says that the boundaries between Englishness and cricket are problematized because by cricket teams the world over eating curry and rice. Um, so, in a sense, 
I'm also thinking about also this film, Ram Gopal Verma's Bollywood film, Lagan, and uh, where the peasants of rural India are shown as beating the English at cricket to get their taxes waived. Uh, the British want to, in, uh, the rulers want to impose cricket as a game that is supposed, uh, supposedly um, going to enforce boundaries between the colonizer and the colonized. But the peasants subvert kind of cricketing rules and all that. Uh, now, I'm just going to also gonna, uh, just kind of add something that I don't mention in the book, which is which I found out subsequently that uh, in the Samoan Islands, they have a bizarre version of cricket called Kirkiti, which is kind of, uh, which is just totally free form. It's, it, it's, it's kind of like sounds many rules, really. It's, it's, it's more like an entire village plays, plays that game and, and it's not, you know, it's not kind of divided into overs or kind of deliveries and runs and things like that. So, uh, I mean, again, a, a game like this kind of moving into uh, um, you know, into multiple arenas, into multiple contexts, changes, uh, and also changes the people, and then also the purpose, really, uh, of, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, there's this phrase in English, it's it's not cricket, literally, it is not cricket any longer, because it's, it's a different kind of, uh, uh, it's a different uh, notion of cricket. So, I know you mentioned Kipling and uh, or, or actually, you mentioned me mentioning Kipling in my book. Kipling's uh, kind of uh, famous use of the phrase "the great game," that of course comes. I think uh, I'm not sure if Kipling has cricket in mind. Probably does, or maybe football, uh, because all of these games were considered to be uh, introducing the game ethic to to train the body of the colonial subject and the mind and morality and all of that to, to bring discipline into the colonial subject. But uh, the, the great game is used more in connection to Afghanistan, to, uh, to, the, to the geopolitics, the imperial geopolitics between the Russian Empire and the British Empire in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, you, have, you have this kind of uh, uh, mixed uh, race child, Kimbal O'Hara, who's kind of uh, Kim in Kipling's book, who's um, kind of literally playing, learning the great game, playing and becoming a survey, you know, a spy really and going into Tibet and uh, surveying areas and things like that. But uh, I'm kind of uh, uh, intrigued by such a use of a ludic metaphor, a, a game metaphor for colonial geopolitics. And uh, I think to me, it signifies important ways in which the functioning of empire and colonialism was shown as a rule-based activity that could supposedly be fun. So empire is rule-based and colonialism is fun. So if that is so, then I, I'm kind of, I'm slightly kind of like adding to what I've written in my book. I just thought of this yesterday, is that I think it's like uh, this whole idea of the great game or the whole idea of the ludification is, you know, it's kind of like a gamification of colonialism. Like you have gamification of whatever is like a gamification of colonialism. So, yeah, that's so interesting. And I guess I wanted to follow up with kind of maybe to ask you to elaborate on this phrase that you use in the title of your book, right? Uh, this idea of like empire plays back. So I guess I wanted to ask, you know, what does it mean to to challenge colonial logics in like ludic terms? So what do you mean by this phrase of kind of empire plays back? Yeah, well, I'm kind of always been a Star Wars fan, so uh, 
yeah, it was kind of uh, impossible to resist the kind of temptation to put it in. Again, there there have has has been a kind of uh, really important kind of text of uh, called Empire Rides Back, and uh, I was thinking of all of these things and. Uh, it just so happened I was binge watching Star Wars again, kind of from the umpteenth time when I was like uh, hunting for a title to the book. You see, when you play a game, it has you can have many outcomes, some very different from your desired ones, and some pretty unpredictable ones. So the colonial attempts at building categories and pigeonholing ideas and whole groups of people into certain acceptable norms doesn't really work out. As Humbhava points out, there is the phenomenon of hybridity that tends to subvert the apparently rule-bound mechanism of imperial um, play. So the moment one kind of brings in play there, uh, there is that level of unpredictability. Um, trying to bring in an algorithm, a discipline, a rule, rule set, um, and making it fun, gamifying colonialism can have other effects as well because it can just kind of lead that, uh, it can just really become really, really playful. So there is the element of playing back, just like writing back. And I'm thinking here in terms of the Deridian Zhu, the Zhu, which is kind of, which describes both, Derrida describes writing as Zhu and describes play as well, right? So play and writing, it's, it's, it's writing is in play as it were in Derrida and where he talks about the margin and the supplement, the dangerous supplement, which subverts and changes the center. So writing, as it were, is in play and uh, subverts the logos and you know the center of the logos, as it were. But uh, that's it's, it's that's what play is doing. It, it kind of subverts. It kind of adds to things and kind of totally messes things up, really. So that's why I, was, I, I mean it was very useful for me to use this uh, kind of uh, uh, phrase "empire plays back" in the sense that the logic of empire. Okay, the, the, it, it's working on like two, uh, two, two kind of like levels here. One is that the empire uh, itself or, or colonialism or empire, it's kind of trying to gamify itself and uh, bring in, bring in cert certain uh, ways that can be imposed uh, through, through uh, kind of rules and be made to seem fun, be made to seem an exploration of agency possibility. But that's kind of like subverted. In, when, in the very process of this play. I've said uh, elsewhere that the logic of empire, the very logic of empire is kind of like perpetuated in counterfactual gameplay, where the historically colonized nation gets to colonize its historical colonizer in the game. Like two levels. One is what I call colonialism redux. So em, em, empire kind of playing, the, or some, somebody who's kind of like playing the game of empire, and doing it again, all over again. That's one kind of way of empire playing back. Somebody who's colonized earlier is playing back against kind of what was in, in, in you know, what was historically the, who, who was historically the colonizer. But uh, there's the other part where the very idea of playing games with empire or playing games with colonialism or putting in this in, uh, in, in this ludic form is actually subverting the very, uh, idea of colonialism. Uh, 
is actually subverting the very watertight categories and comfortable kind of divisions that colonialism tries to establish. I, I want to dig into this with you in a in a moment, but I wonder if you could kind of just sketch for our listeners um, a little a little sort of thumbnail of the kind of political economy of video games these days um, in the sort of global global order. I mean, is it I, because I was I was thinking about playing back. Uh, the empire playing back and I was thinking about the link to um, you know the post-colonial literary criticism from the 1990s and 80s and, and earlier even and uh, the under, underscoring that the way that historically the empires monopolized all of the publishing houses and you know the discourse and and you know on a political economic level just really the subaltern was not allowed to speak because there was no venue in which they were permitted to publish is is that something that per- perpetuated in the video game industry as well uh, are we seeing changes in that or is it still sort of dominated by sort of large corporations from the global north that you know, have this massive control and influence over markets? And this is a very interesting kind of question, really. I mean, uh, so video games research, per se, is is not is no longer that new a kind of a, it, it's, it's kind of moved uh, somewhat out beyond its incunabular stages. Um, I'm looking at kind of 1997, 98 is the watershed year of kind of early um, research of video games starting. And there was like 10 years of kind of just arguments as in whether video games told stories or not, or whether there was rules, uh, rule-based entities, etc., which was um, earlier called the ludology narratology de- debate. Even so, even after all that uh, kind of uh, was over and done with, uh, even so today in 2022, there is very little kind of recognition of kind of some uh, some fundamental issues that video games deal with and that they fail to deal with. Let me let me kind of uh, construct for you a short kind of uh, case study here. I'm looking at a game called Far Cry Four, which was made by Ubisoft and set in a fictitious land called Kirat. Now, Kirat, to all kind of like, you know, anybody would kind of uh, probably guess if you looked at it carefully, is it probably um, modeled on Nepal. But uh, the, the whole um, kind of, uh, the entire way the history of the region has been constructed is as it were, it's like a Disneyland, uh, almost like a Baudrillardian kind of like hyperreal kind of uh, place which but uh, and it draws very heavily on stereotypes uh, something like a Shangri-La kind of construction I mean I, I recently learned when I was researching for this paper that Shangri-La itself is uh, uh, is actually a western construction it, it, it was never it's not it was, wasn't really a place really I mean but it's it's just so much there because if you go to Nepal, you'll see so many hotel Shangri-Las that you probably think that it's it's a it's actually something local in the culture. But so uh, this is I think this uh, phenomenon is uh, is quite indicative of how video games kind of generally cherry pick take take kind of things from the Orient and uh, so-called Orient and. Uh, and construct their narratives, their histories, just perpetuating some of the old uh, kind of colonial kind of assumptions, really, in 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 newer kind of forms. And uh, so, uh, in uh, I, I, I'm kind of really never happy to 
provide an absolutely clear-cut answer, but in, in case of your question, I will. I think that as we stand today, video games in the, in the industry really is very, very global north-centered and uh, rather insensitive towards kind of some of these uh, fundamental issues of history like colonialism. And, and I'm not just talking about colonialism in, in South Asia, but uh, in the African continent, in uh, also also when in with respect to Native Americans and other kind of communities who have been colonized, really. I find it surprising, and then again, not so surprising, that video game studies took such a while to engage with post-colonial discourses or to address and recognize the elephant in the room. Um, with the decade-long debates on the nature of the rule-based narratives in video games, uh, the criticism of from the global north seems rather blasé or ignorant about it. games like uh, Age of Empire or Oregon Trail. People were happy to comment on the representation of history and pedagogical value of these games. But my question is, what history, what pedagogy? Whose history, whose ped? And of course, is in recent times, of course, there is, has been an increased engagement with postcolonialism uh, in games, but that is just for the past five years or so. And, and I just don't think that enough has been done really. And despite kind of things like, you know, there's my book, there's a special issue on postcolonialism and uh, games, and there are other articles coming out, obviously. But uh, even today, when we look at some of the board games as well that people are making and playing, um, they're just kind of so openly kind of like imperialistic. Really. So that's, again, I think maybe this is something we might take up later, but the whole logic of making these games uh, to be about exploring, exploiting resources, exterminating, that's still going to remain a problem. This is really interesting. And it's something that we uh, wanted to ask you uh, about uh, in relation specifically to the concept of the subaltern uh, that you, uh, as you note in, in the book, it's been borrowed from Gramsci uh, by a group of historians and theorists concerned with history from below. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, uh, you, you connect this to uh, Spivak's uh, uh, question, can the subaltern speak? Uh, Gajala's, uh, when is the subaltern brought online and for what purpose? So. Uh, we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what is meant by this. So, uh, first of all, uh, I mean, like I said, my book, The Subaltern Studies Group, was instrumental in questioning the archive that determines the historical accounts. The archive is not comprehensive and, uh, and it indeed elides, evades, and writes out the stories of those who are rendered minor and the other by the colonial system. Subaltern studies scholars point in the direction of those unheard stories. The question I'm interested in particularly, and uh, I'm not taking issue with Spivak here, but uh, instead of asking, can the subaltern speak? I'm more interested in asking whether the subaltern is being heard or can the subaltern be heard, right? Uh, so even if the subaltern does speak in some way or the other, I mean, uh, does anyone, does the colonial system, is it able to hear the subaltern? Is the archive able to give it that kind of you know, space to hear it? This is the way I read positions such as Spivak's, just to clarify. And regarding Radhika Gajala's uh, comment uh, on the subaltern coming online, to what purpose and all that, let me, let me kind of uh, bring this into a more current post-COVID scenario. 
right? The Genesis book is now uh, fairly uh, kind of has been there around for a while. So, uh, I mean, looking at it from uh, let's say a context where vaccination has been tied to an online interface in India, that and for a long time. I don't know if it's still like that now, but uh, I think still uh, it had an English interface. So somebody who would, who needed a COVID-19 vaccine, which the state was making mandatory really, was making, uh, was recommending strongly. Uh, and it's it's also a, an, an issue of survival here that's coming in with the vaccine, uh, was tied to an online interface. And that was in English. So there had to be two levels of access. One is that uh, the person had to have access to a smartphone or some means to kind of get into an online, you know, because it would send you a verification uh, kind of number and a one-time password on a mobile phone. So actually it's, it's a three-level access, a phone, internet, and English. So uh, it, all of these become contingent for the very survival against the pandemic. And in terms of numbers, there are millions who do not have internet access in India, right? One could do a statistical survey and tell you, but then, uh, uh, so then one kind of then has to uh, raise this question is either they forego vaccination or they have been brought online. But even if they have been brought online, that, that's let's say putative million that I talk about, what is the level of agency that they have? Either they don't get the vaccine, so they're not brought online, that's there. Or even if they have been brought online and they get a, get a vaccine, let's say, can they determine what vaccine they, can, they want? Can they choose what vaccine they want? Can they even de determine when they want to get the vaccine, etc.? So somebody's doing it for them, right? So the agency is kind of a moot question here. And this is where I'm kind of then saying that these people are then rendered suburban. The system doesn't want to hear. Yeah, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. I was hoping that we could, we could follow this thread of maybe agency a little bit more because I feel like, you know, zooming out, uh, when, I, when I read the text, I felt like across the text, right, you were talking about these kind of different ways that games allow for the replaying of empire. So on the one hand, we have this kind of like imperialist expansion that is integrated into the game design through the kind of the victory conditions that are determined by the game players, for example, colonize the space, capture that space. But then we also have this kind of reconfiguring of space that you talk about, which is embodied by kind of like alternative histories, you know, in-game opposition, AI, other players. And so you talk about how forms of anti-colonial resistance through like, through, through the ludic, through gaming, take place in this kind of latter third space of the game. And I was hoping you could just maybe for our listeners talk a bit more about what you mean by this third space and its connection to kind of like anti-colonial games or, or colonial resistance. Okay. So I actually, I, I draw the word, I take the word third space from Edward Soldier, who I think also kind of, um, uh, you know, borrows it from uh, George Lefebvre, uh, Lefebvre's concept of Konku, uh, Perku and Veku, sorry, Perku, Konku and Veku, perceived space, conceived space and lived space. And uh, this, the, it, I, I'm actually kind of, you know, uh, in, in a sense then one can say that I am in a certain space, in a room at the moment, the computer in front of me, that's how I perceive space. But one could also do a map, which would be a conceptual presentation of the space. But then again, we are all, all of us are experiencing the space in our own different ways. And that's, that's our lived space, right? 
Soja is kind of applying it to kind of uh, uh, third world uh, kind of perceptions of space. I think uh, this one of the most important things about uh, the notion of third space is that it is throbbing with human experiences. Uh, it is here, basically, the experience of those who are minoritarian rendered minor are available to us, like if we can access that space. And um, and uh, speaking of games, of course, games, the game space is about experiencing, about kind of that, that kind of immediate experience. And uh, it's also ephemeral, it's also kind of experiential, it changes, uh, depends on, like like I said, that the the colonial, uh, the, sorry, the rule sets of the games that the colony, uh, the colonial forces want to apply, can be, uh, you know, just just kind of get get uh, totally out of hand, and you can you can end up in a different game. So, uh, in the sense, then I I'm kind of putting the onus here on the player and the player's experience. So the game's rule set may be X Y Z, but it is what the player does with that rule set that actually has a crucial. Uh, role in, shall we say, the playing back. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really great. Really, really interesting. That makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess I, I maybe to help kind of ground this for a bit for our listeners, a follow-up question that really relates to this, right? So you talk a lot about how kind of like, you know, this the post-colonial history is about resuscitating narratives that are the margins of normative historical discourse, right? So we have like, what if scenarios, counterfactual histories, you know, the creation of scenarios where characters who are voiceless now have voice, they can now speak. And so I thought maybe, could you just, for us, offer a couple examples of games that come to mind for you that like, do this well, or that are trying to do this? I, th I can think of one game that stands out in this sense that, which is Inkle Studios' 80 Days, Meghna Jayant, uh, who writes the, who wrote the game, identifies the intersectional scenarios in the game's what-ifs. And Jayant wants to create scenarios where the historical scramble for Africa is averted by a Zulu empire with powerful automatons, and I quote, um, where Haitian innovation and wealth are dominating the Americas and the British empire's power is on the wane. So that's one level of, I mean, I, I think he's, she's engaged with this and uh, and she's kind of engaging with specific, specific events or specific kind of scenarios and writing it into the game. In a sense, then this is this is a game that I find nu nuanced and not engaging in the logic of colonialism in creating a counterfactual situation. So uh, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that uh, it's kind of uh, uh, not like a kind of player in Age of Empires Redux uh, in the sense that kind of like uh, in instead of kind of the British being the empire, let's say the Indians are the empire and conquering the British, but that's the same logic, right? But that's not what what Giant's you know work is doing. But I also so there are also other games that I find compelling in this connection. For example, Elizabeth Laponzi's uh, "Where Rivers Were Trails" is one such game where she talks about uh, the journey of the Native Americans really and uh, how they're kind of like you know how they're displaced and how how the map the whole notion of cartography changes. Rivers were trails where. Again, kind of how how suddenly kind of where they would be kind of moving through kind of a natural setting in a different way um, has been totally changed, transmogrified by roads and by maps, and that's been imposed by the by the people who are settling settler colonialists. Uh, but uh, the uh, my third example is uh, another game. It's kind of a curious game. It's called Somewhere. It's about uh, it's about a fictional account of uh, a place 
which is being written by a colonial official. It's a place, it's city in India where the people never come out because they're afraid that the moment somebody talks to them, the that voice will contaminate who they are. So as it were, the subaltern really doesn't speak because it's afraid that, uh, or or doesn't, uh, it's afraid that when it uh, somebody else speaks to it, the, the identity is going to change really. So it's kind of a, his, his uh, Dhruv Jani who's designed it is probably kind of like, you know, playing on all of these ideas of, of subalternity, of, of, uh, of kind of how, how the contact with, with uh, uh, the colonial forces or powers kind of will change, change the very identity, will denude the identity, etc. So on and so forth. So there are, there are games which are doing this consciously. Uh, but these are indie games. They're not mainstream games that I'm talking about. I think, however, that even with mainstream games, uh, I think there is a fundamental possibility of playing back the way you actually play the game, right? So, uh, but at the same time, there are certain games that are uh, ostensibly kind of uh, like anti-colonial for example, a game called Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, where you are an, a former freed, uh, like a freed slave, and you are freeing other slaves there. So, in in actually, it's in, it's kind of set in San Doming, Haiti, Dominican Republic, where and uh, but at the same time, it's also quite interesting. Somebody else pointed this out to me, uh, and it didn't strike me my, uh, by myself. But uh, she said that you know when you free slaves. Uh, you're actually, uh, you know, you can improve, you can improve your weapons and your gear uh, on the number of, depending on the number of slaves you freed. So freeing slaves becomes like currency. So it's again kind of like perpetuating a logic of colonialism, capitalist colonialism as well, which is, which one has to kind of be careful about, right? It depends on how, how players kind of approach games, how they play games really, playing against the grain as it were. These are really fascinating examples, and I wanted to, to follow up because the examples that you've mentioned just now are all um, largely forms of resistance to the co sort of colonial narrative on the level of narrative and on the level of um, yes. content of the game. And I'm wondering about form as well, because, you know, and, and this is by no means a new point. I think it's been made many times by feminist and anti-colonial game scholars that the sort of the eye in the sky, master yes. commander, um, vantage point of many games is one that is deeply steeped in a kind of colonial worldview, as is the kind of first person shooter where somehow the world is a series of enemies for you to, for you to annihilate with <laughs> reckless abandon. Yes. Do you see innovations being made in the in, in sort of anti-colonial gaming, post-colonial gaming that's really trying to push back against these kind of formal dimensions of games, either by developing alternative perspectives, alternative modes of gameplay, or by, as you're saying, sort of uh, moving into those game spaces and inhabiting them differently and playing them differently in some, some sort of way. You're absolutely right here, because in my book, I don't address the form as much. I'm coming from a literary studies background and, uh, you know, it's more about the narrative, the context, but uh, as, as I've been kind of thinking about it more and more recently, you know, uh, more, the, you know, the form becomes, uh, it's, it's a very, very important point you made. And it also links, I think, to critical code studies. I mean, is code itself colonial? 
is it is it kind of is the algorithm kind of pushing the player towards kind of a certain way of thinking and let's let's go with ian burgos's notion of procedural rhetoric if 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 it is the if we are to do with do to go with that then is the procedural rhetoric kind of by default colonial you mentioned the eye in the sky the fog of war those kinds of things and then kind of uh, uh, perceiving everybody as an alien and shooting through uh, so i'm kind of uh, like now thinking about something like the, the algorithmic justice league uh, describes uh, where where it kind of identifies the inequalities that have existed within the algorithm i'm kind of interested in kind of looking at code as not being neutral and 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 that, and that there is inequity in colonial thinking in code itself uh, in the way these games are coded in the way the logic of the games are kind of defined now uh, whether whether these uh, games are kind of uh, or whether there are games that are coming up which are coded differently if that is your question i don't think so not yet not yet not now sadly and uh, it's more about kind of the hero's journey of kind of joseph campbell that's kind of, you know and uh, the same sense of agency and this is something i'm going to do, give a talk on soon about kind of how how it is always about uh, a poetics which is based on agency what about kind of a poetics or a construction of of the narrative where uh, agency is a problem right agency is taken away uh, so it's it's kind of always that kind of uh, being in control and wanting to con- and needing to control really uh, that that's uh, important so uh, i don't have i don't have a very positive answer for this sadly and and the games that i've kind of given you examples of you're absolutely right there they're they're actually trying to address this question so they're kind of niche in that sense and they're indie games and i would certainly like to see different game mechanics that kind of people harvesting minerals and uh, resources and upgrading their weapons with that and exploring and kind of like seeing and conquering the very very seeing of a, of a place the new place watchtowers and you kind of as it were you have oversight of it so that that exploration be conquest so all of that maybe yeah that. yeah I, and this uh this is something that is uh, has been this question around uh the the kind of game that is subversive in different ways including including in its form, in the form it takes, has been at the center of, of this podcast. And uh, and our, I suppose, our motivation, some of our motivation for in exploring this question comes from this 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 question about critique of conspiratorial games that uh, we have been pursuing here, and uh, specifically looking at uh, what uh, modes of uh, playing of also of connecting uh, players in in more regressive kinds of of games that uh, are uh, that involve conspiracy or within which conspiracy is cultivated. Uh, so we we're interested we're interested in uh, in uh, uh, considering the kind of community aspects uh, of playing of of games and so with the awareness that these community aspects can lead to regressive uh types of connection uh 
I'm wondering, I guess where I'm going with this question is, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this issue of the individual gamer, the individual player versus the sense of belonging that playing a game satisfies and whether there is a kind of um, radical potential to be found in in this element of connection, uh, in, in your experience and in the games that you have uh, studied. So uh, the moment you mentioned the word play, I see a radical potential. I mean, just as kind of, uh, you know, uh, just as, uh, like I said, with Derridean notions of Shu, um, there is this kind of radical uh, potential of disruption. And uh, that's it's certainly there. But uh, again, I mean, uh, on the other side, perhaps, um, let us look at who is playing these games. And uh, of course, of course, I, I, I grant that the scenario is changing with the internet kind of connections coming into the global south and uh, and people getting more 4G connections or uh, playing on mobile. But who's playing these games, really? They're still kind of uh, more on the Global North servers, really. And and they're also being kind of uh, perpetuated or kind of or played by communities which have a certain way of kind of responding to these. So perhaps I think uh, uh, one way forward would be for these games like like Max said, uh, to to kind of have a have have a different, a more innovative algorithm or kind of form that would kind of uh, you know uh, a different kind of gameplay. But you're absolutely right, Iris, in the sense that when when we are looking at the potential of the games, as in as in people playing uh, multiple people playing into engaging with each other across the globe, really, then so many different things can happen. It is also possible that everybody wants to play it in the Lord of the Rings style, and that's it. So this is, it's, it's kind of, there's that unpredictability, like I said before. I don't know if you agree, but I think it calls for a little a more responsible and innovative game design from, you know, on, on the part of the AAA game designers, really, to, to kind of, you know, make this... Uh, you know, these possibilities kind of more obvious, really. Uh, so ra- rather than kind of designing uh, a scenario where everybody is a monster and you just shoot through it, boom, boom, boom. Uh, you know, it's just kind of maybe maybe a, a different kind of a setting, a scenario and logic, perhaps. But uh, I, I will agree with you that uh, play of any kind has radical possibilities, just like cricket didn't remain like that, uh, the good boys game, or or the game to design, you know, or to or, to, or the game to train people to be good boys, and now 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 even women play cricket, right? Which wasn't kind of what it was, and then they play really good cricket, and and um, they, they and the whole idea of cricket has changed, of course, with various kind of uh, different innovations in cricket. Really, I think that uh, this is the, the same also applies to these kind of games as well. I, I would also probably pitch for a m- more sensitive and uh, more nuanced way of thinking about designing video games and slightly more innovative uh, ways instead of kind of continuing the same. I wanted to follow up while we're still kind of discussing sociality and form. Um, in in our brief introduction to you today, um, 
we just briefly kind of alluded to some research that's ongoing about ancient Indian games uh, that have maybe a different kind of grammar or a different approach. And I wondered if you wanted to take a moment to tell us a little bit about that and and sort of what it, how it's informing your thinking about games now and the kind of alternative possibilities for games. When was the last time you played Snakes and Ladders? Uh, with with children uh, or with adults? <laughs> just just a time, just a time, yeah, with whoever. Uh, it's it's big in the under six crowd. So uh, me too, and uh, it's always about kind of letting them win, right? Because uh, you know, and it's it's about, but it's it's a game about winning and losing, right? Whoever gets to hundred wins. With snakes and ladders was not, uh, you know, it. Uh, the game actually comes from India. It wasn't a game about kind of uh, winning and losing. It was a game about figuring out your your karmic life, how to lead your life. It was a it was it was about pedagogy rather than kind of winning and losing a race race game. So it comes to the UK and to Europe through our colonial kind of connections, and that's it becomes a race game there, right? So. But the game used to be played very differently. Every square would have a kind of word written there, uh, like a virtue or a vice or whatever. I'm, I'm saying this in very Christian terms, but this is certainly not kind of, you know, in that kind of clear-cut manner. And the game wouldn't end in square 100. The board was 72 square board. The game would end in square 68. Which meant that you can you could keep going and going uh, in the game because that was about rebirth. It was about rebirth. You can just see such a simple mechanic as kind of changing the end point of the game changes the entire concept altogether. And brought in from uh, kind of India via the colonial kind of mechanism, it just changes and becomes a race game. Ideally, then a fairly boring game. And for adults and more a children's game. So uh, suddenly what you and I would have probably played to figure out uh, how, what our karmic lives would be like, let's say in a different context, uh, suddenly that becomes uh, a game for children. Uh, not suddenly, but it becomes a game for children in the process when it is kind of moved uh, through kind of empire into, into this kind of present form. And now it's come back to India as a, as a race game. Now, now in India, we don't play the original form. We just play to the race game. It's a children's game. It's sold together with Ludo. Uh, and C'est la vie. So that's the thing. And this is what my current project is on. I, I'm writing a, my, my new book is on uh, transculturation and how kind of these games have moved across in empire and what's happened to them. And again, then how they could have been played, played differently or how they were actually played differently earlier. Yeah, that's a really, really uh, insightful answer. And it's, and it's nice to touch on uh, what you're kind of working on now and, and, and explore that a bit. And I guess maybe in terms of kind of one of the, the final questions we always kind of like to end with a bit, just because the podcast, you know, we're always looking at questions around games and around and around conspiracies. And we talk a lot about, you know, games as a site of community formation and also conspiracy and conspiracy fantasies as sites of community formation. And so I guess I wondered in, in your work, you know, do you see, do you see ever like kind of discussions of this, this, this kind of engaging with conspiracies and conspiratorialism 
and kind of fantasy and myth as a part of, of gameplay? Or wh- where do you see the role of kind of conspiracy and stories that we like to tell? And how does that kind of map onto the work that you're you're doing thinking through games? I mean, there are there are games which are uh, very heavy on conspiracy as a part of their plot device. There are conspiracies and conspiracies need to be unraveled or conspiracies need to be countered mostly. So there is that kind of level there. Also, uh, kind of the very idea of counterplay, counter gaming, like you call it, is a conspiracy in a way. It's kind of like a conspiracy against the, the algorithm in a way or or sets ways in which the designers or XYZ would or the system would like us to play. So the very idea that we are not playing that game, but playing a different game, but we are playing nevertheless, is, is a conspiracy in that sense. And uh, in, in a sense, then, then my very book project that I just mentioned is a conspiracy of, of kind of trying to unravel the simple uh, logic in which snakes and ladders would probably have remained uh, to, to kind of then, then kind of say that, no, this is not how it, uh, you know, there, there, is, there is something else there. So... Uh, I mean, in, in in that kind of sense, that there is there is a conspiracy and also the unraveling of a conspiracy in a sense. That this is this uh, unraveling of a colonial conspiracy in, in that sense. So it can be used in multiple senses. But I, I I would I would kind of like to see games as a as a medium which kind of allow transgression, hard coded into kind of the very notion of playing is the notion of transgression, and the notion of kind of going against the the set rules really although games are based with rules but then you can always kind of play against play pretty much i mean i'm, I'm kind of like intrigued by this notion of conspiracy and i'm not sure if you've already kind of uh, had discussions but what do you think about kind of you know conspiracy and and colonialism and play i mean I'm just kind of uh, curious i mean i've been thinking recently that a lot of the there, there's a lot of entanglements within sort of the the right wing and reactionary conspiracy cultures in uh, the places that I'm familiar with, which is like mostly Western and Central Europe and and North America. That a lot of the conspiracies are tied up with notions of colonialism, though the conspiracy fantasists themselves would not actually acknowledge it as such. So, like on one level, I think that like myths like and that animate a lot of conspiracy theories today like the great replacement are this like sort of heinous racist theory that presumes that global elites are seeking to replace white populations in settler colonies like Australia and Canada and the United States and in Europe with migrants from around the world and they sort of the the kind of so-called intellectuals of these conspiracy theories sort of uh you know take a look at sort of global uh, fertility statistics, and they're like, "Oh my God, you know, uh, white people are going to disappear. The white race is going to disappear," uh, which, of course, inherits a long legacy of sort of racist fears of engulfment that I think emerged in that colonial mentality. I mean, also very like dismal theories of race that are completely bogus, but were developed in order to legitimate colonialism yeah. itself. Um, so these sort of this fear of a revenge of the oppressed and of the colonized, I think kind of weirdly animates a lot of the the prevalent conspiracy theories now. 
I, I was just thinking that, you know, what you mentioned about kind of the first person shooter as kind of training people to conceive of everybody as the other is perhaps a response uh, to such kind of conspiracy kind of, you know, theories really, because you, you're always kind of constructing an alien and other, a literal alien really from doom to, and then kind of continually, you know. You know, I think it's not accidental that a lot of the protagonists of these kind of new white supremacist flavored conspiracy theories got their starts in things like Gamergate and the kind of the gaming subculture, because on a certain sense, there is that like that that hero, the the the, the shooter is hero. Uh, Franco Bifo Berardi has written a very interesting analysis of this without a kind of post-colonial or anti-racist critique, but of of this kind of figure of the hero now appearing as the kind of first person shooter. And you get these kind of, um, you know, at, at its horrific apex, you get these people who arm themselves and then go go out and, and kill, you know, commit mass murder uh, of racialized people or people they think are migrants. Uh, but it, with this kind of fantasy that life is like this kind of first person shooter or that, you know, the world is made up of, you know, this kind of like um, populist, realism from political science that you know you can understand geopolitics purely as a matter of strategic interests and yeah. you know like like Sid Meier's civilization and that's all there's <laughs> ever been you know yes yeah. Siv is one kind of and, and it just still goes on like that and uh, speaking of which I'm kind of like slightly tempted to just end or just kind of at least add one more example civilization has a nuclear Gandhi uh, thing there, where Gandhi is kind of uh, can be used to be the most violent kind of nation, really. And uh, they they said initially that it was a glitch. It actually was a glitch that kind of made the figure of violence go into uh, maximum from negative. But uh, Sid Myers recently said that it wasn't a glitch; it was a joke. Or, but um, I mean, if it was a joke, it was one in one that is extremely problematic to think about. Uh, I mean, and I'm going to kind of uh, link it, and I have done in my book, to Churchill's, uh, you know, uh, conception of Gandhi as a conspirator, as, as somebody kind of who's, who's subversive, somebody who's kind of like, who's, uh, who's dangerous, who is, uh, who had to be kept in his place and who was conspiring to move out of that place, really. And I, I think it's it's a similar, uh, I mean, why otherwise would there, there be this kind of perpetuated fear or kind of discomfort with a figure like Gandhi? Or Martin Luther King, for that matter, who actually modeled his kind of, you know, who actually did have Gandhi as one of his models. So, yeah. So that's, this is, again, kind of brings, brings in, you know, the, the unease with conspiracy yet wanting to. Yeah. So. I'm so curious what a video game would be like that was based on Gandhian principles of nonviolence. Uh, with the current kind of way in which we think of video games, with, with the hero as the center, I mean, it's kind of uh, difficult to imagine. But uh, there's this example I'm going to borrow from Ian Bogos, where, where um, the, a priest apparently was playing Grand Theft Auto and he didn't want to commit any act of violence. So all he did was he walked around or he drove around and he took photos of violent situations and he put it up on the in-game notice board and wrote commentaries on kind of how you could be, you know, non-violent or whatever. So um, that's, that's kind of an example of counter-gaming as well, in a sense. 
I recall there was an artist and I'll, I'll put the name in the show notes because it's not coming to me right now, who's did a project where they um, played, I believe it was Call of Duty, one of these yeah. big multiplayer action uh, games based in sort of battlefields and was playing, I think, uh, one of the battlefields in the Middle East. The artist was of a background um, of, of that background. And this artist would just go around and, and use the voice um, dimension of the game to beg yeah. not to be killed. And then of course, like the, the, the artwork was this video game of like basically boys, <laughs> you know, playing the game, killing this artist over and over and over again, often with like espousing sort of racist and homophobic beliefs. It was quite a, quite a remarkable, uh, very simple, but quite remarkable artwork. Yeah. Um, but an but, interesting way of counter gaming, perhaps. So that's kind of that again speaks to what we were talking about and what you were asking about kind of games, kind of, you know, how they work in counter. I mean, I think it's a fascinating medium. It's a new, fascinating medium. Uh, maybe not that new, but then still kind of uh, has all these opportunities that, that it opens up really. Just, just, just like kind of a book can be, can can uh, can be a conspiracy in itself, really. I mean, so can a game in, in many ways. But then again, there's also this other other kind of element where uh, there's it's always kind of reacting against conspiracies, like in the first person shooter kind of thing, constructing aliens and then kind of. Uh, Suvik, thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me here. For me, you know, I mean, I guess this is always the case with a lot of this research, right? Like you just sort of, you don't find the solution so much as realize like the depth of a lot of the problems, you know? And so this makes me think a lot, even I read this other article just in research for, for this, for this interview called Replaying Colonialism, Indigenous National Sovereignty and Its Limits in Strategic Video Games by this, this uh, scholar, Mark Carpenter. And, and Carpenter's making very similar points to, to what Sue is making in terms of this kind of post-colonial critique of the logics of games. And I guess, you know, and it's a question that we're always thinking about is like counter games and we're always putting it towards uh, our guests and we're always putting it to ourselves. And I guess sometimes I, I forget like the, the depths of the ways in which these logics are so central to like just all meaning making, you know? So, cause I think that in, in, the, in this article and in and Suvik's book, there's a really good job pointing out like, okay, we can be like anti-colonial, we can center a non like kind of Western character, a non-white character. But like, for example, Carpenter's piece talks about how like with indigenous nations, they're still always portrayed as like dynamic, future oriented and only modern via like universalized Eurocentric achievements. So like conquest of an empty world. And so it's like, okay, I guess going forward, you know, as we kind of continue along these, these lines, thinking about this project, I just find myself kind of always thinking more about this, you know, like if, if, if power in games is only ever legitimate, if it's national or imperial, no matter who the main character is, like, how do we, how do we change that logic? How do we change that tension? You know, like we can't obviously just, just switch the players and expect different results. And, you know, it's obviously a process, something that we need to continue exploring, but I think it's just something that's kind of come out even clearer for me. In, in this talk is, you know, counter gaming is so much more than just like, you know, changing the content, you know, as, as I think a lot of our discussion is gone, it's, it's so much about a reimagining of the form. And based on a, a lot of our different work, right, around the crisis of imagination, this is just a good reminder 
of the the true depths of that i think that crisis of imagination yeah i mean i think adam you just put it there really well uh you kind of covered what i had in mind to uh my thoughts on on our conversation and yeah it's actually i mean i think there is an element of uh slight pessimism even there i mean i think in that you know what we see here are also the limits uh of counter gaming uh and uh what i found most useful um in in our conversation now was the this kind of tracing of the uh of the of the colonial kind of cycle uh in which games are embedded and and how uh kind of decolonial counter gaming uh the, the the limits that that that, that has uh, and so you know i I do think it's an important point of reflection that, you know, we put that question of form to our guests uh, as though it's just, you know, uh, you know, just yet another question to consider, but it's actually so central and how to break away from, from the barriers that the colonial patriarchal uh, form of gaming has placed on us and, and, uh, on the colonized subject, on the subaltern subject, it is just um, uh, so complex. So yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a, you know, there is, there is an element of, um, perhaps it's not pessimism, but it is a kind of realism uh, that, you know, you finish with an imagination reflection here, Adam, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of reminded of a realist, uh, of a realism that we, uh, that might be needed as well in the way we approach counter gaming. Uh, and and that is probably an important as we're moving towards the the, the close of uh, our season, uh, one that we should keep in mind just as much as we keep the question of openness and and uh, reimagining. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think also, I mean, something that strikes me is that given the video games are relative to many other media of um, entertainment and expression relatively young, um, we're, we're only now beginning to see the, the general shapes of things. And it, partly because it's such a highly mediated sphere with such a pronounced political economy, um, it means that, you know, these large video game manufacturing or, you know, uh, not manufacturing, but uh, programming companies um, are headquartered in the global north. And they do tend to um, build on a legacy of companies that have been located in the global north uh, and are creating narratives based on what's come before in that particular cultural idiom. The irony, though, is that increasingly a lot of those companies are seeking workforces in the global south in formerly colonized countries. So it's actually, you know, people who come from uh, societies that have endured colonization who are now often doing the kind of programming of, uh, of of these games, although often they don't necessarily have a huge amount of control over the the narrative and the story and the form. They're just doing, uh, you know, they're basically just doing a task. Um, you know, increasingly as the video game industry globalizes and there's a sort of race to the bottom. And that's to say nothing about the fact that like almost every component of the machines on which games are played are manufactured in countries that have endured colonialism. And the fact that they're manufactured there is because the legacies of colonialism 
created circumstances where labor and environmental uh, you know, uh, exploitation are permitted in ways that they are perhaps not permitted in the nations of the earth that benefited from uh, colonialism, at least not in the same way. Um, so with those sort of political economic things aside, I, I maybe just want to go back briefly to this thing that I was talking about with Suvik near the end of our discussion, which is just how dangerous the kind of subjecthood is that uh, that a mainstream video games tend to promote, either that kind of eye in the sky, master commander, you know, um, panoptic godlike view of the earth that relies upon sort of western cartographical imperial traditions to you know allow for as you were saying you know like the expansion of of a race you know into terra nullius to colonize it and take its resources to turn into weapons to fight other races i mean this is like a nazi fantasy and yet somehow it's just kind of mainstream or alternately you have the kind of first person shooter where you are basically put in a world surrounded by either hostile aliens as suvik put it or and or these kind of robotic non-player characters and often those robotic non-player characters who seem to have no sense of agency are completely disposable and it's not coincidental that often in these games the non-player characters are women or people of color you know that that are just sort of like they don't actually have any form of agency and i think this maybe goes back to that notion that the imperialists of old had that empire was this kind of great game you could just sort of play games with people's lives and that was that was just fine. Um, and then the kind of fears that that also builds in the in the gaming, in the imperial gaming subject of the of the moment when the non-player characters rebel and, you know, appear as agents of their own history, you know, or or the moment when you're overrun by the alien horde that your accumulated weapons can't uh, defeat. There's so much about the kind of fantasy realm of video games, I think, mainstream video games, that um, that has, I think, what led to a lot of the kind of reactionary conspiracist fantasies that we've been so fascinated with and, and horrified by um, that led us to start this podcast, especially as they intersect with forms of sort of hegemonic and toxic masculinity also that's kind of obsessed with this notion of the sovereign the sovereign self, whether it's the sovereign commander or the sovereign uh, shooter. Um, so I see this all as tangled up and I, I feel like it actually speaks, to sort of echo both of you, I think it just speaks to the importance of experimenting with various forms, not just of counter gaming, but of inventing different types of games that, that would allow us to encounter the world in each other in different ways. I mean, there's just so many possibilities. You know, games arguably are older than written language. They're old, they're, you know, they're as old as music or storytelling. They're very ancient forms of human um, communion. And interestingly, some of the history of games also is that they tended to travel through the most cosmopolitan elements of a culture. You know, the games would travel on ships, for instance, and they'd reach different ports in this way. And they'd be sort of a vent, you know, you can you can play a game with someone even if you don't speak one another's language particularly well. So I think there's this other hidden history of games somehow that that opens up to a kind of cosmopolitanism, to an encounter with the other, to a kind of radical hospitality um, that is quite exciting to me. 
you have been listening to conspiracies and conspiracy games and counter games excuse me uh season two of the order of unmanageable risks a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties for more information about this podcast to listen to other episodes or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part please visit www.conspiracy.games <laughs>